want to thank everyone for coming here this morning. Uh, obviously, you're here. You didn't neglect church this morning. You know that there is a huge, huge growing trend for people to neglect church services. You understand that? That millions and millions, actually tens of millions of Americans are, are, are there's this growing trend for them to neglect. They're either unchurched or they have stopped attending church services or they have deprioritized church services. Tens of millions of people in this nation have this huge trend, especially in the younger generations. And just to point this out, it's not just specific to Protestant Christianity. It's actually across the board. Uh, religious services across the board are actually declining. Um, you see it in Judaism. I may have mentioned this before, but I actually have a, a Jewish friend I was talking with, and she told me that there are no more Jewish synagogues in Zanesville. No more. There used to be three, and it went down to two, went down to one. And what is happening is their, their younger generation of people, they're just not coming to church. The people are growing older. Many of them are dying off and just not having people attend their churches. There's no more synagogues in Zanesville. None. Same is true in Catholicism. You, you see a growing trend of people. Less and less people are coming to church. Same is true for Islam, even. Muslims are not attending religious services. It's across the board. It just people are not going to church services there was a study done in May of this year that said 31% of the people surveyed said that they had been to a church service within the last seven days. Now that's down from 34% from just a few years ago, remember during the, uh, the pre-pandemic around the year of 2020. So you lost a few percent of people through the pandemic thing. You go back to 2013 and the average was 40% of people surveyed said they attended church services regularly. Now, if you look at the data, which all of it varies to some degree or other, there's this big, giant, steep drop-off around the 1980s, okay? So it's for many years, it's kind of holds steady, maybe decline a little bit, and then you kind of get to 1980s, that decade, and there's a big drop-off, big decline that began to happen in America. In other words... Church attendance is declining rapidly. It is. It is declining rapidly in this nation. If you go back 100 years, roughly, and you take those same surveys of church attendance, almost is well over 70% of the nation attended church services. I mean, we're, we're way off the mark from just 100 years ago. And, and the decline, you have to understand this, the decline in church attendance, it is not good. It is not a good thing whatsoever. It's dangerous. It does not bode well for the nation that neglects going to church. It is not going to produce something good. You cannot go down that road and expect good things to happen. When a nation or a body of people stop going to church, it will, mark my words, it will produce negative results. When people do not have regular intervals of biblical teaching, biblical preaching, biblical expository, it, it is not good. It's not good. We need that. It, Christ came and he instituted the New Testament church because he knows we need it. This, this holds true for a nation. If, if a, a nation of people stops going to church, it's not good. It, this holds true for a family. 
If a family chop stops going to church or deprioritizes church or says, hey, that's not that important, it does not bode well. It, it holds true for an individual. It holds true for communities. Do you know that it's actually statistically provable that communities that are heavily involved in religious services are better, stronger communities than those that are unchurched? It's statistically provable, brothers and sisters. You can go look at the statistics. Now, I'm sure someone in here might be thinking, come on, man, you're, you're going to bust my chops because I missed church last Sunday. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I am careful not to be an attendance Nazi. Uh, Pastor Joe is not an attendance Nazi either. Um, no one likes an attendance Nazi. Hey, you were gone last Sunday. Where were you at? I need an answer. Nobody likes that. No one likes to be micromanaged. No one likes to have anyone breathing down their neck. I understand that. We understand that. Um, actually, this just happened like a week or two ago. Um, I just happened to notice that someone in particular wasn't here uh, Sunday. And, you know, without thinking, I, I texted them after the service. You know, hey, man, you doing okay? And immediately they responded, hey, someone was sick. I need to take care of them. And I promise we'll be back next week. And I actually, I felt bad because I wondered if the person thought, you know, I was nitpicking. Hey, where were you at? My, you better tell me where were you. You better have a good excuse for where you had gone. You know, I, I don't like anyone nitpicking me, so I try not to nitpick anyone else. But it's funny, that just kind of just happened. Um, now, this is a decent-sized church, and I fully understand stuff comes up, okay? Life happens. People get sick. Work schedules change. Emergencies come up. We're just really kind of getting through vacation season. You know, it always seems like, well, this family's gone. They're in Myrtle Beach. That family's gone. They're in Florida. This family's gone. You know, we go through that in the summertime, and that, all that stuff's understandable. We have some folks that cannot make it on Sunday mornings because they work. I had a period in my life years ago where I worked on Sundays every single Sunday for three and a half years. I couldn't be here. It was actually a pretty dark time in my life, to be honest with you. But that, some of that stuff is understandable. I get all that. I'm not talking about all those situations at all. Life happens. I get it. But I'm talking about knowingly neglecting and knowingly deprioritizing church. Knowingly making that decision. The Bible warns us about putting other things in front of God. The Bible warns us about neglecting church. Now, we're going to look at an obscure passage in the Bible that is actually very hard to link together, uh, that you're going to think has absolutely nothing to do with church attendance. But trust me, it will make perfect sense as we get towards the latter end of this sermon. Um, in other words, I'm going to start reading some things, and you're going to say, that don't have not anything to do with church service whatsoever. But trust me, um, uh, let's just work through this. Now, before I get to that passage, I want to explain something to you that many of you either may not understand, or if you do understand it, maybe you lost sight of this fact. Um, I, like to, I like to hold to some of the Christian traditions. I think we should resurrect some of them. Some of them are awesome. We lose sight of them. Um, you know that Sunday, traditionally, in the Christian tradition, which is what we are, is actually known as the Lord's Day, nicknamed the Lord's Day. It's been called the Lord's Day for centuries and centuries, the Day of Our Lord. Now, this can be a little confusing because when you look at your Bible, you see most of the time the Jews and so on and so forth, that they rested on the Sabbath. And 
it's a little confusing because we tend to think that Sunday is the Sabbath, right? It's our, our day of rest. Uh, but that is not right. Sabbath, or Shabbat, is Saturday. So it's a little confusing, but it commemorates, the Sabbath commemorates how God created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. That is what the Jews observed for many, many, many centuries. You know, so then the confusion comes is why are we here at church then? Typically our day of rest, this is the first day of our week. Sunday begins the week, and here we are gathering on Sunday. Why did America, or at least we used to close all of our businesses on Sundays, you go back, I don't know, 20, 30 years, many, many businesses were closed. There's a handful that still do it today. They close on Sunday because it's this day of rest, typically. Why do church people, most of the time, Sunday after church, you go home and take a nap. It's your day of rest. I thought it was Saturday. Why is it now Sunday? So why are we here at church on the first day of the week? When did the switch occur? Why did the switch occur? A little bit confusing. Well, a little teeny tiny incident called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That sort of made a, a bit of an impact on the way we observe church, on the way we observe uh, Saturday and Sunday. When Jesus, listen to me now, when Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week, the disciples, the, the apostles, the very early first century Christians, as it started spreading and Jesus ascended, they began to meet regularly on the day of our Lord, the day that he ascended, the first day of the week, Sunday. They began to gather with one another. They would come together. The, 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 I hope you can visualize this. The disciples, they would come together. Apostles would come together. Those early believers, they would come together. They would gather on the day that the Lord rose from the dead, and they would discuss Scripture. They would talk about Jesus' memories. They would reminisce about the Lord Jesus. Sometimes they would eat food. They would meet in each other's houses because there were no churches at that point yet. They would worship, and they would pray. They would open the Bible. They would read Scriptures. They nicknamed it the Lord's Day. We've been observing it now for centuries and centuries and centuries so that when you come to church on Sunday, you right now are observing, you right now are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus just like the disciples, just like the apostles, and just like the early first century Christians did. This is a tradition. What we are doing right here, right now, as we have gathered together this morning, this is a 2,000-year-old tradition. Sundays, Christians all over the world, they gather to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that. I love church history. It's fantastic. Inversely, if you also say this, if you neglect to gather, if you say, eh, we'll, we'll go some other week, I'm a little worn out, a little tired today, and you neglect to gather with fellow Christians on Sunday, you're neglecting to observe and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Now, before you tune out and get angry at me for preaching about church attendance, let me direct you to the book of Numbers, chapter 32. Now, here's where it's going to get strange and you're going to say, boy, what in the world are you talking about? Numbers chapter 32, verse 1. Just before we read, um, the book of Numbers 
Actually, in the Hebrew, it's not called numbers. I don't know why really they called it numbers because the Hebrew word for it is much better. And what it actually means is in the wilderness. So in Hebrew, the book of Numbers is called in the wilderness. And really, it records the Hebrews' journey through the wilderness. You remember when God delivered them out of the land of Egypt and they wandered for many years through the wilderness. That is what the book of Numbers is. Now, where we're going to pick up is these 12 tribes that make up the Hebrews, the Israelites. They're just about to cross over Jordan into Canaan, the promised land. Okay? Let's read verse 1. and Then we'll stop for a moment. It says, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. So you have these 12 tribes of Israel. that They are coming up to this Jordan River. They see this land of Jazir. They see this land of Gilead. It's good for cattle. So... They're going to cross over. Canaan's this promised land that God had promised. If you remember clear back in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he's going to say, I'm going to take you to a new land. And he promises this land to Abraham's descendant back in Genesis 12. If you remember that, he gives it to his descendants forevermore. You know, we have Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel who make up the nation of Israel. And then if you remember, shortly thereafter, they go into captivity for hundreds of years as slaves in Egypt, right? So then this whole Egyptian captivity thing takes place for 400 years. They have this promise that this Canaan, this land, this plush, uh, fertile land is going to be given to them. And uh, turn into Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. So God calls Moses. Look what God says to Moses. He says, I am come down. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. It says, I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, enlarge, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So it's the Bible's way when it says land flowing with milk and honey. That's the Bible's land is saying this is a good piece of ground. Very fertile, very good for crops, lots of trees, just a wonderful, beautiful place. And God promised them to Abraham and his descendants. You know, to the, the people of God, the children of God, flowing with milk and honey. But... It also has some inhabitants there that they might just not come off that piece of ground very easily. So this is kind of bringing us back up to our opening text. So this, the people of God, they're traveling through the wilderness for many years because they were stubborn and so on and so forth. And now they're just about to cross the Jordan River into the land that God promised them, which brings us to our opening text. I want to read it again. Now the children of Reuben... And the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. 
Now, this tribe, so there's two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad. They have all these cattle, right? And they see that this land, Gilead, Jezir, this is a good land. It is very decent for grazing cattle. And behold, we have cattle. So they're going to ask Moses, hey, Moses, instead of us crossing the Jordan over there into Canaan, can we just stay here? Moses, this is a good land for cattle. We, are, we have cattle. We have lots of cattle, these particular two tribes. Can we just stay here instead? Right? Let's start reading verse 2. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the princes of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Dibon and Jazir and Nimrah and Heshbon, Elelah, the Shibam, Nebo and beyond, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel, it is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. Okay, do you see what's going on here? You have these two tribes. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan. There's these people that live over there, the Canaanites, all the different tribes of the Canaanites. There's going to be some fighting. They're saying, hey, look at this ground. It's, it's good for cattle. We have cattle. Moses, could you be reasonable and let us just stay here? You guys could go over there and have the promised land. We got cows. This is great for grazing. We like this. Can we just stay here? Can we have this as an inheritance? So if we can put our little map up real quick. Okay, now I know that probably is a little bit small. But if you can see, right in the middle of the map is the Jordan River. You see the Dead Sea. Yeah, that, that's good there. You see the Dead Sea is the blue part right in the middle. And then the Jordan River goes right up through there. Now you see Gad, there in an aqua blue color. You see Reuben, straight behind it. And above that, you see half the tribe of Manasseh. Okay, they're on the, the east side of the Jordan River. All the other tribes, half the tribe of Manasseh, and the rest of them, nine, are on the west side of the Jordan River. Okay, so just keep that little mental image. You can leave that up there for a moment. Keep that mental image in your mind. Take a peek at that map every now and again. Really, the tribe of Gad and Reuben, they're just being reasonable. They're saying, hey, on this side, that's some good cattle grazing. Moses, could you just let us stay here? And we'll stay over there. Um, we'll get to the half the tribe of Manasseh later. We haven't really talked about them yet. Well, this great cattle grazing land, they've conquered it. Why can't we just have that as our inheritance? doesn't seem too bad. Where's the harm in it? We're just trying to be practical. We're just trying to be realist. Well, Moses, you're going to see, he doesn't like this. Actually, kind of makes him angry that they asked because he knows there's going to be some fighting. As soon as they cross that Jordan River and they go over on the other side, there's going to be some fighting with the Canaanites and the current inhabitants. And they're going to need help from those tribes. So we'll look at Moses' response now. Numbers chapter 32, verse 6. And Moses said unto the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war and you just sit here? And you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them. 
Thus did your fathers when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol in the land, they discouraged the hearts of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled the same time. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. Verse 12 says, Except Caleb, the son of Jephuni, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. And he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was consumed. And behold, you're risen up in your father's stead, an increase of sinful men to augment yet the fierce anger of the Lord towards Israel. For if ye turn away from after him, he will yet again leave them in the wilderness and ye shall destroy all this people. You can see that they actually kind of tick Moses off right here. He's like, man, you all are like them bums, 12 spies that we sent over. And they came back. They were all afraid. And they said, we can't defeat them. There's giants over there. Except for Joshua and Caleb who said, we can do it. He said, man, you're just like your fathers. And because those people sinned like that, God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You caused the anger of the Lord to come upon us. People like you did, your fathers did. And now here you want to repeat their behavior. You're going to cause God's anger to fall upon us again. You're going to end up destroying all of us. We've already been wandering around for 40 years, and now you want to do this again. So they greatly anger Moses. Moses is like, "Uh uh-uh, you guys ain't going anywhere. You're not going to try to get out of a fight. You're not going to try to discourage the rest of us. Imagine if there was some sort of a battle, you know, and and maybe you had some close buddies with you, and you're just getting ready to go to battle, and your buddy's like, hey, man, see you later. I'm out. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be very discouraged. Yesterday, I had to preach at uh, uh, the Putnam Jam Fest. I know some of you have heard of that, and... I tell you what, it, it really meant something to me to have a little handful of New Hope folks show up. And as I'm preaching, it's actually kind of a difficult atmosphere. You know, a lot of people were coming and going, talking, you know, and so on and so forth. It's not like a church service where everyone's kind of paying attention. Uh, it's a little distracting. It can be difficult to try and, you know, the wind's blowing. My notes are kind of flapping away. It's difficult. But you know what? I could look up and in my peripheral vision, I saw just a couple people in my corner and it gave me confidence. It emboldened me. It helped me. It really did. There's something about just having some of your people, having some of your people gather and be, and be in your corner. And, and here these two tribes, Reuben and Gad, and ends up being half the tribe of Manasseh. They're kind of like, eh, it's going to be a fight. See ya. We're just going to stay over here. I mean, this is good cattle ground. We're, we're cattle. We're farmers. Just let us stay over here. Well, Moses is angry. He's like, uh-uh. You ain't doing this because people wanted to do this before, and it caused the Lord to get angry. It costed us 40 years of our lives. And lots of people... God caused them to to wander for 40 years because he said, hey, you unbelievers, you ain't coming into the promised land. You're going to wander around until most of them die off. And then when they die off, then you can cross Jordan and come into the promised land. God doesn't like it when we're unbelievers and when we're weak in faith and we doubt him. So Moses knows this battle's coming up as soon as they cross Jordan and these two tribes are trying to get out of fighting. Almost like they're They're going to bow out, 
and, and you guys can handle this. We're just going to stay over here and live and prosper and have our cattle and raise our families. So Moses warns them about the wrath of God that abode on them spies for many decades, how they wimped out when they saw the giants in the land. Really, Moses is saying, no. Can you have this ground as an inheritance? Moses is saying, no, I don't think so. You can't break off and stay in Gilead. Nope. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. And they came near unto him. These are those tribes again. They came near unto him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our cattle and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will go ready, armed before the children of Israel until we have brought them into their place. And our little ones shall dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return unto our houses until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on yonder side Jordan or forward because our inheritance falls to us on this side of Jordan eastward. So Reuben and Gad... After Moses yells at him and says, no, I don't think so. You guys aren't going to shag out of a fight and discourage the rest of us and cause God's wrath to abide on us. After Moses says, uh-uh, they come back and are like, hey, hang on just a second, Moses. How about this? What if you let us build some houses, build up some little cities so we can keep our wives and children? Let us build uh, barns and so on and so forth for our cattle for, so we can leave all this stuff here. And then when we do that, we will cross Jordan with you, armed and ready to fight, and we will not go back home until we clear out the Canaanites and the rest of the tribes get their inheritance. Everybody kind of following me so far? It's not too difficult of a story. So these people are just kind of trying to be reasonable, and they're trying to reason with Moses. They're saying, Moses, we understand. You think we're wimping out of a fight. We get that. We're not going to bail on you like that. We will come and help you fight. Once these people are gone and we get rid of them out of this land, then and only then will we return home to our wives, our children, our houses, our cattle, and so forth. Seems fairly reasonable, doesn't it? Doesn't seem like a bad deal. They say, for we will not inherit with them on that side of Jordan or forward because our inheritance is fallen to us on this side of Jordan, eastward. So those two tribes say, we'll help you. And once they're cleared out, then we'll go back. Now, are you wondering yet, what in the world does this have to do with church attendance? Boy, what are you talking about? You spend too much time in the sun or something like that? It has everything to do with it. We're going to get to that. Numbers chapter 32, verse 20. And Moses said unto them, If you will do this thing, if you will go armed before the Lord to war, and will let go all of you you are excuse me, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Lord, until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterwards ye shall return and be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, 
you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build your cities for your little ones, and your folds for your sheep, and do that which has proceeded out of your mouth. Okay, you get that? Moses says, hmm, all right, do what you said you'll do. And if you guys do what you said, you'll go armed with us, you'll fight, clear out these wicked people that have been murdering children for centuries and centuries. Once they're eradicated, once we have the land, once all that's done, then you go back. Do what you said, okay, and I'll, I'll let that be our deal. So he agrees to it. And he actually, we won't read all this, but he tells Joshua. Joshua is the leader that takes over after Moses. He's a good Christian or good uh, man of God as well. But he goes and tells Joshua, because remember, Moses himself doesn't even get to cross over. He goes and tells Joshua, make sure Reuben, the, the tribes of Reuben, make sure Gad perform what they say. Don't let them off the hook. Make sure they do what they're supposed to do. And if they do, all right, so be it. They can have, stay on this side of the Jordan River. Right? And they do. We won't read all of it, but they do. Reuben and Gad perform their word. They go armed. They send all their warriors, all the, the, the people that fight. They go over, and they help the rest of the tribes defeat the Canaanites. And then they return back to Jordan. They cross back over and settle in those regions that you can see there. Back to their cattle. Back to their grazing lands. Back to their wives, their women, and their children. Now, all this does seem harmless enough. It really does. seems like they're just pragmatic people. They're just practical. It's a good land for grazing cattle. But if you have discernment, you, must, you might notice a couple of things that just don't sit well in this little story. They just don't sit right with me when I read it. And remember, these stories in the Bible are not just historical accounts to entertain us, right? They are trying to teach us something. They're trying to communicate to us. What is this story trying to communicate to us? You know... Here's something that bothers me about this story. In the first place, Canaan was the land that God had chosen for the 12 tribes of Israel. Canaan was the promised land, not Gilead. Do you understand that? That these people are consciously choosing and saying, we don't want what God promised. We want what we think is best. To them, Gilead seemed like a great place, but it wasn't what God had in store for them. Canaan was what God had in store for them. He had promised something that was across Jordan. And here they are saying, we'd prefer it on this side of Jordan. That doesn't sit well with me. It does not. If you want to settle for something less than God's promises, go ahead. You can. He won't force you. If you think you have it figured out better than what God does, have at it, brother. Have at it, sister. But I assure you, it is not going to work out. It is not nearly going to be what God had in store for you. Because God won't force you. Nope, not at all. I promise you, it will not be better than what God has promised you. I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I can say, that is true for my life. There are jobs that I've desperately wanted. 
There's promotions that I've desperately wanted. And I could visualize myself into those positions, excelling, doing good, trying to be a good leader, making things better. And the door closed right in my face. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is wrong, God? What, what is wrong? What, what seems to be? I was perfect for this. It could have been more money, more stability for my family, so on and so forth. But yet the Lord said, nope, that's what I've got in store for you. That's what these two tribes are doing. They're saying, we see the promise of God on the other side of Jordan. But to our rationale, to my logic, look where we're at right now. This is great cattle land. Let's just stay here. Do you see what they're doing? They're, they're rejecting what God had for his people. Now, when you say, no thanks God, we know you promised us this, but this seems more reasonable. It may suffice for a while. It might. It, it may work for a bit. Really, it might. Your life most likely is not going to collapse or completely fold right then and there on the spot. But it is a compromise and you're settling for less than what God had. Something will just not be right. There will just be something off about the situation. When you force open those doors that God says, no, I have something else for you. Now, maybe you're thinking... Brother, you're getting further and further from talking about church attendance. What in the world does any of this have to do with neglecting church and deprioritizing church? Well, that's sort of the second thing that bothers me about this whole deal. The 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's sons, remember Jacob wrestled with an angel, and then his name was changed to Israel, which means struggle with God, strive with God, his descendants, 12 sons, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Jacob's 12 sons and their descendants equal the Israelites. They were God's chosen people to introduce the world to a monotheistic God. All, all the other gods were their pagan gods, a big pantheon of gods, all kinds of sun gods, moon gods, so on and so forth. But the Lord appeared unto Moses, or the Lord appeared unto Abraham as one God. You remember we talked about the things that are unique to the Bible. It, it is one God. And God would speak and reveal himself to the world through his people. And here, we have two and a half tribes wanting to break off from the rest. Just something's not right about that. They're wanting to say, we'll stay on this side. You all go over, over on that side. There's something just off with that. That the people of God are, are dividing. They're separating. They're not gathering all together in one place. In the place that God had promised them. A couple of them are saying, we're just going to stay over here. God's promise to the people of Israel is that he wants all of them in the fertile land of Canaan. That's what he had in store for them. God wants all of us to cross Jordan together and to live there together and to stay there and be there and dwell. We're going to stick together as the people of God. And here a couple of tribes are breaking off. We're going to stick together because like Moses said, it's discouraging when tribes start breaking off. It's discouraging when brothers and sisters start neglecting being with each other. 
when they quit gathering together. It's discouraging. When you see families, hey, where's so-and-so? I don't know. I ain't seen him in a while. It hurts. When people quit gathering, when they think this isn't important anymore, it's discouraging when we look so lightly at observing the day of our Lord. So, two and a half tribes, they don't settle in the promised land. Instead, they stayed on the other side of Jordan. Well, I got a question. What happens to them? What happens to those two tribes? Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. I mean, are they okay? Does the Bible tell us? You know, I mean, it's not a big deal, right? They're just good cattle grazing land. They're just trying to do what's best for them and their families, right? Well, fast forward some decades and decades and decades and we can find out what happens to them. To the, the two and a half tribes that broke off from the rest. But the, the strange thing is it's, it's hard to connect because it's not right there in, in the book of Numbers. You got to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 5 verse 18 to find out what happens to these two and a half tribes that break off from the rest. Some things in the Bible are hidden. 1 Chronicles chapter 5 verse 18 says, the sons of Reuben, so it's talking about the descendants of this tribe of Reuben. The sons of Reuben, the sons of the Gadites, there's the Gad, the tribe of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, remember our map now. You don't have to bring it up, but you remember our map. This is exactly who they're talking about. The descendants of Reuben, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, of valiant men. Men able to bear buckler and sword and to shoot with bow and skillful in war were four and forty thousand seven hundred and three score that went out to the war. So they had, now we're not going to read it all for the sake of time, but they had a few battles themselves. And you see the Bibles describing them. They did okay for a while. They were doing all right. They didn't just stay on that side of Jordan and then instantaneously everybody collapsed and was destroyed off the face of the map. No, they did okay for a little while. They were very valiant men. They were good uh, warriors, very mighty. They went okay for a good while. They was able to survive. They grew. They expanded their ground even a little bit. If you keep reading around some of these passages, they grow a little bit. They increase a little bit. But skip down to verse 23 of that same chapter. And the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. They increased from Bashan unto Belhermon and Sinir and unto Mount Hermon. And these were the heads of the house of their fathers, even Ephir and Ishi and Elil and Azrael and Jeremiah and Hodaviah and Jadil. Mighty men of valor, famous men, and heads of the house of their fathers. And they transgressed against the God of their fathers and went a-whoring after the gods of the people of the land whom God destroyed before them. Listen, 
And the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tilgath-Pilneser, king of Assyria, and he carried them away. Even the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them into Halah, and Harbor, and Harah, into the river Gozan unto this day. So you see, brothers and sisters, things went okay with them for a little while. They didn't immediately implode. They didn't immediately go after other gods. But year after year after year, they get drifted further and further and further from their teachings they had. They drifted further and further from monotheism, from learning about the Hebrew God. When they broke off, they survived pretty decently for many years, even grew for a little while. They were mighty. They increased. What's the big deal? Well, they were broken off from the rest of the flock. They broke off from the rest. They didn't have strong, godly leaders like Joshua to admonish them. They didn't have strong, godly leaders like Caleb to hold them accountable. They're on the other side of Jordan. They aren't hearing their preaching. They aren't hearing their teaching. It was a slow fade for the tribes of Reuben. It was a slow fade for the tribe of Gap and half the tribe of Manasseh. They were detached. They were detached. And the results weren't immediate. They broke off fellowship with the people of God. And it went okay for a while. If you neglect church fellowship, you might be alright for a while. You don't turn immediately. If you don't, if you start skipping church the next few weeks, you don't immediately turn into a drug dealer. It doesn't work that way. Your family doesn't get broken up within a couple weeks if you quit coming to church. It doesn't work that way. It's a slow fade built up of many, many compromises, built up of many, many ungodly decisions. Decisions of neglect that may not appear instantaneously, may not appear to have any real damage or any real consequences until years later. The descendants of the tribe of Reuben, the descendants of the tribe of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. It's a slow progression. Matter of fact, it's so slow that you are unable to even clearly see it when you break off from the family of God. You see, that's the deceit in deprioritizing church. You won't realize it for many, many years. You may not realize there's anything wrong until the king of Assyria is carrying you off captive. Notice, if you will, that the king of Assyria got those outliers. He ain't going to cross Jordan because there's all kinds of them people of God over there. But on this side, on the east side, there's only a couple tribes. There's only two and a half tribes. They were easy pickings for him and his army. Because those that remain together, those that remain together are a strong people. They remain strong. They encourage one another. They build one another up. But Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh, they didn't have any church support. None. They didn't have a good pastor warning them. Hey, don't go after those other gods. It's not good. Don't go after those pagan gods. They didn't have anybody to hold them accountable. They didn't have anybody to preach the good word to them. They didn't have anyone to warn them. And no one, I dare say, to rebuke or to reprove them every now and again. They had left the fellowship and things were good until one day they weren't. You can decide 
after today to never come back to church again. In a few years from now, you might come to Pastor Joe and say, Hey, Pastor Joe, look at me. I got a better job since then. I got more money since then. I'm doing much better. I told you I didn't need this until one day, somehow, someway, the king of Assyria comes and he will carry you off captive unto this day, the Bible says. They got picked off by the enemy. They became a statistic. We don't need to cross Jordan. This land here is good for us. We, we, it has what we need. Please understand, brothers and sisters, they thought they were doing the right thing. They did. They thought they were doing the right thing. Um, this is a land that's perfect for cattle. And behold, your servants have cattle. It works out. This is perfect. Let us stay on this side, Moses. They thought they were being reasonable. They did. This is a land great for cattle and we have cattle. Little did they know that they doomed their ancestors. They doomed their children, their grandchildren, their great-great-grandchildren. We're doomed because they thought they were doing what was right. They did what was right in their own eyes. They weren't with the rest of the tribes on the other side of Jordan. If I can ask our band to make their way back. You understand that sometimes decisions that we make may not directly harm us, but they're going to harm those after us. Very much so, they harm those after us. Why do you think the Bible commands mothers and fathers to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Raise them that way. Because if you don't, you may not doom yourself. You're dooming them. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh were enslaved and plundered by the Assyrians. Everything they had worked for, all that good cattle ground, all their barns, all their cities, all of it plundered, all of it ruined. When all they had to do was stick with the people of God and they could have enjoyed the plush, fertile land of Canaan. The rest of the people, they were safe on the other side of the Jordan River. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to gathering on the Lord's day and you want to sleep in or you just don't feel like it or you got other stuff to do or just not today, I'll ask you this. What or who might you be dooming in the days to come? Let's stand this morning. Father God, I thank you for this lesson that emerges to us out of the tribes of the descendants of Jacob. Lord, we clearly see what the Bible is communicating to us, Lord. Clearly. Couldn't be spelled out any easier, Lord. You just hide these things in your word for us to discover, for us to search them out, Lord. It's dangerous when we begin to neglect gathering of ourselves together. Many, many times in the book of Corinthians, the phrase, as ye gather, is used. Many times, Lord, because you want us to gather. You want us to continue to observe and commemorate and celebrate the day of our Lord, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus resurrected. Lord, I thank you for the faithful people that still do continue to show up, Lord. 
We do have many that come every week to the best of their ability, Lord. They come and they celebrate and we gather together. Lord, I pray this message goes out and it finds a place in our hearts, Lord. Lord, that we will not neglect or deprioritize coming and gathering with the body of Christ, Lord. Don't let us become detached. Don't let us become strangers in our own church family. Lord, plug us in. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken, Lord. Lord, I just pray, Lord, you inhabit our praises as we worship one last time. In Jesus' name, amen. These altars are open, and we'll worship one last time.